0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2017. Today's episode is titled, Gambling on Hypocrisy. A pedestrian assumption by organizational leaders is that workers can compartmentalize their private lives from their work lives. This presupposition is that a worker's private ethical standards can be different from the ethical standards required by the organization, but the worker can set aside his or her personal standards and adopt the organization's standards at will. However, to act inconsistently with one's personal ethical standards is hypocrisy. Management must understand that people cannot compartmentalize their private lives from their work lives. The core values of workers will be manifested in every area of their lives. To deliver excellent value, organizational leaders must embrace biblical core values such as sacrificial faithfulness. This means that an organization must build with workers whose personal core values are truly congruent with the organization's core values. Failure to do this means that the organizational leaders are gambling on worker hypocrisy. This is a bad bet. And now Dr. Chester brings you the message titled, Faith and Works. Well, good morning.
1: And this morning we're continuing the study in the the book of James looking at James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. So let me uh let me pray and then I'll read the text and uh, we'll begin the teaching. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you would uh, bless our our gathering together, bless our learning time together, bless our hunger and thirst for you. Give us just grace to go deep with you. Father, just give us uh, wisdom and discernment to see what you're saying through this text and may it transform us and bring us into better alignment with you so we commit this time to you in Jesus name amen all right well let's read James chapter uh 2 verses uh, 14 through uh verse 26 James writes what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him if a brother or sister if a brother or sister is poorly clothed you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, James continues his discussion of something that he began in chapter 1, and that's the whole concept of the testing of our faith. In James chapter one verse two, um, he talks about the reality of what he's all about in this book, and that is he's all about challenging the believers of his time to think about the lordship of Christ in a very profound way. And the lordship of Christ is is means that Jesus is Lord even when things are not going well, even when life is difficult and trying. So the very first thing he talks about in this this book, this early book, which may have been one of the earliest epistles written, and it was written specifically to a a, a congregation in uh, Asia who apparently had was well trained in the Old Testament Scripture, and the, and this may have been more than one one congregation. It was a group of people. We don't know how many cities were involved. We don't know how many people were involved, but they were these were Jewish people well trained in Old Testament Scripture. So he in this book does not spend much time. Uh, explaining uh, the Old Testament. He assumes you know the Old Testament, and you know some of the basics of Christianity, so he just jumps right in to the application. So in Chapter 1, he begins by counting all joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations, because you know that the testing of your faith is designed by God to perfect you for your good. So that's what he's essentially is saying that's his theme and he's continuing that theme now through chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in chapter 2 he's actually applying it very specifically. Chapter 2 the first half of chapter 2 is about uh, about discriminating uh based on worldly metrics. When you make discriminations about people based on externals, you are not making the discrimination that God makes. God makes discriminations but they're based on the heart based on the internal so that was the first example of of how you know we are mis- we're not walking in the reality of our faith our faith is being tested when we don't make the right discriminations and the last half of chapter 2 we have another test and now this test is when we we don't respond properly to to genuine real needs that we might see in the body of Christ so i've titled this walk the talk illustrated But I want to stress again that this is a continuation of the discussion of chapter 1 of James. And this is all about what it is to live under the Lordship of Christ and how to see difficulties and challenges and trials and tribulations in a biblical framework, from a biblical worldview. That is the only way that we can see things correctly. So let me just take you through this text. Uh, we'll just, we'll take you through in sections here talking about the text, and then we're going to talk about some theological implications of the text, and finally we'll do some application. So the first section is verses 14 through 16, and you might call this section, uh, no winners. Uh, no winners means that when you fu- function outside of a biblical worldview, no one wins. You don't win, and the people around you that are impacted by your decisions and your actions don't win. So he says, what good is it? And the word for good here is not the normal word in Greek for good. It's a word that really means profit. So it's a better translated what profit is it, what benefit is it, what value is it. My brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, and this word works is the typical Greek word, for work, ergon, it is plural, so it's actually erge, that's the plural form of the, of the word. And that word appears 12 times in this section of scripture. So it's clearly a big issue. Remember, ergon refers to all kinds of work activities. It's not just, uh, what we would call good deeds in English, like helping some old lady across the street or maybe being a volunteer at your local church, you might consider those good deeds. Now, this word work is much more comprehensive than that. It covers everything you do in every jurisdiction, including the workplace. Your work in the workplace is your ergon. Your work in the church community is your ergon. Your work in your family is your ergon. Your work in your, in your city is your ergon. You know, even your work in your own personal life, personally governing yourself, trying to govern yourself under God, that is part of your ergon. So it's a very broad term in in terms of its meaning and implications. So what he's saying here is that if you have faith, and faith is another word for a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview. If you say you have a Christian worldview, but your actions, your words don't line up with that, then he's saying, what good is it? What's the point? What's the profit? And then he says, can that faith and that worldview, and remember, faith is used in the New Testament in two ways. It can refer to the faith, which refers to the the dogma of Christianity, the, the truths of Christianity. It also can be used of personal faith in reference to your personal convictions. That is your perspective of God and, therefore, how to live in light of that. That's called your worldview. That's your philosophy of life. So here I think he's talking about worldview and the philosophy of life when he uses the term faith. So he's saying when you have make a projection to others, you profess to have this worldview, but your works don't line up with it, can that really save you? you know, what's he saying there? Now, you know, some people would say the Apostle Paul would really raise his hand here and object and say, no, salvation is by grace through faith alone. And James would probably counter by saying that's true. But how do you know someone's saved? How do you know someone's really received the grace of God in their life? What's the evidence? There's got to be some external evidence. And this is where James adds to Paul and adds in a very constructive way, saying real faith, true faith, really demonstrates itself in action. So you can look at actions. So when James is saying, can faith save him, what he's saying is faith without works. Faith without actions, faith without actions that are consistent with a Christian worldview. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is it? Now, this is very interesting. It's a hypothetical situation. He's saying, just suppose that you run into somebody, and they have a need. They have a physical need, and what you do is you actually give them an imperative. This word, this phrase, go in peace, be warmed and filled. These are imperatives. It's basically you command them. You go and you, you take care of yourself. You go be warm, you be filled. It's like you do it yourself. I'm not going to do it for you. You do it yourself. So it's an interesting way that James expresses it, which shows you the attitude inside the person. And that's what he's, that's the point he's trying to make here is if you really have a Christian worldview, if you really have real faith, then what happens is it's going to show up in your attitude, and your attitude is going to be expressed in something you do. Your actions will show your worldview, will reveal your worldview. There's another interesting play on words here. This, uh, When he ends this uh, question with, what good is it if you don't have actions that reflect your worldview? It's that same word that was used in, the fir- in verse 14 It's that word for profit. What profit is it? What benefit is it? What value is it? So it's kind of an interesting way that he's framed this particular scenario. He goes on then with a principle. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That is the principle he wants to get to. That is the key principle of this whole section right here. Everything in this section revolves around that principle. You know, you have you say you have a faith, you have a worldview that's based on Christ, but you're not living in that. You're not walking in it. It does not show up in your choices. It does not show up in your actions, it doesn't show up in your words, then what he's saying is it's dead. You don't have real faith. And so so at that point, you know, Paul would totally agree. You're right. You know, if someone truly has been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, if that really happened, they will demonstrate fruit of that reality. They will change. They will be in the process of transformation. So that's what, that's where Paul and James come right together. Paul focuses on the salvation by grace. James focuses on the evidence that you've been saved by grace through faith. Now, if you want to, you know, go back to chapter one, there is a reference in chapter one to the reality that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Because he points out that, you know, the seed of the word is planted in us. And that's the seed that has the power to save us. We don't save ourselves. That seed that's given in us saves us. So he's very Pauline. It's just that he's talking to people that he assumes understand salvation by grace, but they don't understand lordship. And so he's he's talking to them about what it is to live under the lordship of Christ. So that's his emphasis here. He goes on there, but someone will say, now he's going to talk about a hypothetical objection to this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then now we have another imperative. James says, okay, you say that, show me your faith apart from your works. That's an imperative. That's a command. Show it to me. Demonstrate it. I want to see it. Of course, the reality is they can't show it to you because your works are the way you show what's really going on inside of you. What's inside of you shows up in how you work, what you do, which is why it's so important for those in the workplace to recognize the spiritual state of a worker is very important. It's a very key to understanding if you're going to, if you want to hire sound workers. So show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Really the Greek is very interesting here. It says, and by my works, I will show you my faith. So, you know, basically, you know, you you show me how you can separate faith and works, which you can't. He says, but I'm going to show you my faith by how I work. So he's making he's really making a very strong argument here for the congruence between faith and works that they cannot be separated. You believe that God is one. You do well. Now that's a reference to the Shema of Deuteronomy six: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one." You see, Christianity is based on on the idea that God is one. Now, we now know that God is one in a trinity as well. There are three persons in one essence. That's how we understand that. And of all the worldviews of the world, you know, Christianity is one of the few that, that, that teaches one God. If you go into Hinduism, for example, they have many gods. And, of course, in the Roman culture of this time, they were polytheistic as well. So this was a distinctive of, of Judaism and Christianity, this one God. And so many, many people would make that profession. They'd say, well, I'm a Jew. I believe in one God. Well, that's good. That's well. You should, you should believe that. But you need to know this. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons are not atheists. Demons are not polytheists. Demons believe in the one God, the God who is the creator of the universe, and they shudder. Now, that's interesting. They shudder, but they're not transformed, which tells you that you can have some kind of intellectual belief that is not informing your worldview. And that intellectual belief can give you knowledge that God may exist, but you are not living in light of that, so you don't have true faith. And I'm going to show you a chart in a moment, which I'm going to give you four different versions or variations of faith or four four different versions of a Christian worldview, and you can see these distinctions. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Now he gets very personal. It's not a hypothetical. Now he direct to them. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to be seen that? Now he's going to give you two examples. He's going to give you Abraham and Rahab, which are two examples from special revelation. And then he's going to give you a final example from general revelation very interesting. He makes his argument. He's got three ways to make his case that, uh, you know, if you think that you can separate faith and works, you know, you're foolish. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So Abraham is a great picture here. Abraham is told by God, go crucify your son Isaac. Go kill him. Sacrifice him. Now, Abraham knows that Isaac is the one that God has chosen to be the heir of the seed that God has has put into Abraham. So Abraham is sitting there and saying, wait a minute, I had a hard time having his son, and now you want me to go sacrifice him? Well, how are you going to fulfill your promise? So he goes through uh, quite a, a thinking process here, and Hebrews chapter 11 helps us understand what that process was. Basically, he, re- he reasoned that God would be faithful to his word. And therefore, if he was to obey God and sacrifice Isaac, then God must be planning to raise him from the dead. And so once he got to that place where he knew that God would be faithful to his word, and therefore God would find a way for Isaac to bear his seed and fulfill God's promise to Abraham, he was willing to do that. Now that took a lot of courage. It took a lot of faith. I'm sure a lot of wrestling to get to that place. But he demonstrated that he believed God. He was willing to act on his belief in God. He was given at the ultimate trial. Kill your son. I mean, can you imagine putting yourself in his shoes and you know that your son is an heir, your heir to carry your lineage and the promise of God to your family, indeed to the world? That had to be a tremendous trial. There's probably few other trials, if any other trials, ever as great as that, and yet he rose to it. And that demonstrated that he had truly the faith, the faith of Christ in him. He had saving faith. He had a true Christian worldview. It was not just lip service. And then he goes on to share another story. And he says, uh, interesting the way he does this, he uses the word uh, in the same way. Uh, this is a word uh, that we get, uh, homoousius. That's a common word which means in the same pattern. So uh, we get the word homo from it. So uh, homo sapien is a human being. So we all have the same being. So. He says of Rahab, the prostitute, that she was justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, many people think in some ways that, you know, that James is, uh, justified her lies. She lied to her towns, townsfolks, her townsfolk, the fellow citizens and leaders of her town, saying that she didn't know anything about these uh, spies and didn't know where they were, et cetera, where they, where they had gone. And so she lied and that, that, you know, that's always an ethical conundrum to know what to do with that. What he's, what she's commended for is that how she told the spies where that the people that were after them went and sent them a different way. And that's what she's commended for. That's an act of faith. She's putting her trust in the God who is getting ready to send the Israelites in to destroy her city. So again, another trial and she expressed faith in God and the one God of the universe. Some people have said, well, she's the, the antithesis of Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch and, and here then we have the prostitute and the prostitute was the most ungodly of people and Abraham was the most godly of people. So the extremes is how some people view this. But whatever the case is, we have two examples from scripture that show that what's really inside of you is manifested by your actions. And finally, we have an example of general revelation. He ends with, As with a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the human body. If it doesn't have a spirit, it's gone. When God made man, he made human beings, and he breathed into them the breath of life, the spirit. He breathed into them that life. So when you take that spirit out of man, then man is nothing but dust. So this is a great great example of how you can use general revelation to make points of, of truth as well. Special revelation was used, general revelation was used to make his point that faith apart from works is dead. In other words, faith apart from works is no faith at all. So let me just uh, give you this little chart here to kind of help you understand what I think are four kinds of faith. And actually, uh, you might say, well, they are not really four kinds of faith, but there are people that would profess faith in four dimensions, four ways. The first is what I call no faith or vain faith. An example of this was given in this text, the demons. They believe God is one and shuddered, but they didn't live in light of that reality. Uh, the other example would be the citizens of Jericho who also believed, as, as Rahab did, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was with Israel, and they were getting ready to invade the promised land, and they were going to take over Jericho. They believed that was true, but their response was to try to fight God. Our response should never be to fight God. Our response should be to align with God. Rahab aligned with God. And then another example would be hypocrites. These are the religious leaders who are really trying to execute their own agenda. So they can profess sound theology. God is one, for example. But they don't live in light of it. And so their ultimate state is death. So that's no faith or vain faith. And that's what Paul Paul uses the term vain in First Corinthians fifteen verses one and two, talking about if you know about receiving the gospel unless you received it in vain. And then we have the next category is wrong faith. Wrong faith is where your theology is flat wrong. An example would be an atheist or an Islam. Those are two examples. You could find a lot of examples. Now those people might might or might not be true to their faith that they profess. But they're still going to lead you to a bad state, a state of death, because there's no life in bad theology. You have to have sound theology. What what James is talking about here is people that profess sound theology. They profess to truly believe in the God of the Bible. That's what his discussion point is. Then there's a third category called unclear faith. These are carnal Christians. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2 is the example of this. And they, they obviously are professing some level of biblical theism, some level of truth about God, who He is, but they're not living in light of it. They're living like the world. They're letting the world define, you know, their actions, their thinking, their, their habits. So, you know, the end state is we don't know if, if they have eternal life or not because you can't tell a carnal Christian from a person who doesn't have faith at all. That's amazing thing. You know, the, the fact that carnal Christians exist you know, Paul is clear on that. They exist. The problem is we can't tell who they are. When you see somebody that does not display, you know, actions congruent with Christ, then you have no reason. You can't. You have no way to know whether or not they're carnal, or they're just, or they're just unsaved. You don't know. No one knows. Only God knows. And the last category is true faith. This is the only good category here. This is the people that like Abraham and Rahab, that profess sound theology, and now they they practice and they live with integrity to that theology. They live congruent with that theology. They live in a state of life because that is the only road to life, is living a biblical worldview. So that's, the, I think, a good picture of how to see these things, and certainly one of the things that, that James wants us to get. He wants us to get to a place where we're really clear that the only way to live is a biblical worldview, and we will all be tested in many, many ways. So just a couple of theological points and applications real quickly. Faith and works are congruent. That is, whatever you really believe, not necessarily what you say you believe, but what you really believe will be expressed in your works. So you might say you believe one thing, but you're doing something else that that springs from another faith. Well, Whatever it is, your, whatever shows up in your works, that's that's an evidence of your real faith. There are four types of faith, I think. There's vain faith, which is empty faith. There's wrong faith. There's unclear faith, which is carnal faith. And there's true faith. The only real faith that you want is true faith in Christ. Now, so a few applications here. Now, one of the challenges today is that uh, – there are many, many people in the Christian world that attend local churches. I see them in wherever I go, whatever Christian settings I'm in. And I've been in settings, uh, in every continent except South America and Central America. But I've been on every other continent in this world and been in church settings, multiple church settings. I see the same thing over and over again. There are people that believe they can accept Jesus as Savior but believe that they do not have to save accept him as Lord. And that's optional. That's how they view it. That would be, I think, very dangerous. There's no scriptural support that I know of to support that view. And the scripture, like in this text here, says the opposite. It says that if you don't have works congruent with your profession, and you're professing Christ, and you don't show works that are consistent with Christ, you don't really have... Christ. You don't know Christ. Faith without works is dead means that you don't have real faith. The only way you can be assured that you have true faith, the only way anyone could assure you that you have true faith is you have to have works. You've got to be living a life that's congruent with your faith. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it, it should mean that you are continually growing and maturing in your understanding of what it is to walk in a Christian worldview. Another example of, of this is, uh, application of this, is we have this assumption in life today that you can go and do whatever you want to do in private, but when you come to the workplace, you leave whatever you do in private, you know, out. That assumes, again, that people can separate faith and works, and we cannot. Whatever you do in private, you will do in the workplace. Whatever you do in, in one area of life, you will do in every area of life. So we have to get really clear, you cannot separate your private life from your work life, your private life from your Christian life, your private life from your 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 public life cannot be separated. So if you're unfaithful in your marriage, you will be unfaithful in your business. Uh, some of you have heard me share the story about Ross Perot, who famously, uh, back many years ago, probably couldn't do that today, but many years ago, 40, 50 years ago, if he found out anyone in his organization was unfaithful to his wife, and he had mainly had males in his organization, he would fire them on the spot. And there is rec- his reasoning was very sound. He reasoned that if they'll be unfaithful to their wives, they'll be unfaithful to me. That is very true. James would say, yeah, very true, Ross. That's exactly what would happen. And so that's one of the things he did, one of the management practices he had that was probably very biblical, very sound, and really helped him build the organization that he built. And finally, we have... We have today going on this whole idea of self definition. We call these our rights. We have a right for self definition. We think that we can define family, we can find our gender, we can define our career, we can define even our Christian community. We think we can make all these definitions ourselves. And this is assuming again, you know, rights and freedoms that we are not been given. A true biblical worldview says that God sovereignly gives us these things. So if you are assuming you have all these rights, that is not biblical. That is not Christian. And I would say to you, if you're making those assumptions, you're buying into worldly thinking, worldly wisdom, which is no wisdom at all. It's leading you astray. It's leading you away from Christ. And so the solution is to repent. Turn to Christ, embrace him, and now get somebody to disciple you and how to live out the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So James is a very challenging text. He challenges us to rise up at a whole new level of understanding, a whole new level of what it means to walk with God, a whole new level of lordship in Christ, a whole new level of how to think and how thinking drives everything you do. And you must get your thinking right, thinking right about God and what it means to walk with him and under his lordship, or you will never Live faithfully what you've been called to live, which is as as a servant of Jesus Christ. So may the Lord give us all grace to learn to live that way and to walk in his will and his ways and die to our will and ways to serve him in Jesus' name.